It's movie time, and we're back again uh, on movie time. Sorry about that one week hiatus, folks, but we are back again. And with me is my host, uh, my co-host, Kente. Hey, Kente, how you doing? I'm doing excellent. I'm so happy to be here. This is a uh, wonderful Monday. And, um, you know, I just missed the show. You know, we didn't do it last week, but, you know, we're going to go forward and bring a great episode tonight. Absolutely. Technical explosions. Gotta love them. <laughs> now, of course, we love participation. If you want to participate, you can come to our website. And that website is indyradio.org. And uh, once again, that's indyradio, indyradio.org. Another way you can participate is calling in. And that number is 323-522-4601. Once again, that's 323-522-4601. And with us tonight, we have an amazing, amazing person, Anne-Marie Gillen. Hi, Anne-Marie. How you doing? I'm doing great. Hi, Odette. Hi, Kenneth. Hi. Yeah. It's, it's, so uh, how is weather in beautiful California for you both? Um, it's about 81-ish, so it's cooled off today. It was this past week leading into the weekend in the 90s and 100s, so it's been a heat wave. Wow, that uh, like that's always amazing to have that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know because you know sometimes we I do this show and I can't have air going on, so by the time we're done with the show, I'm I'm just a ball of sweat, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> man, it's it, it can be a lot. Oh yeah, it, today we had it here at 88 degrees. I was like, yes, 88. Mm, it's like any, any hotter word, DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a wonderful heat wave. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, Anne-Marie? Well, I can tell you a lot a bit about my background. Yes, please. I think it's interesting to hear about people's backgrounds because there's so many ways to come into this industry. And people think they have to have a degree in film from USC or LA or whatever and I was nowhere near that and so I do want to take you know five ten minutes and kind of give you my background on how I got from A to B or A to, a to Z or A to Y or whatever so um, I'm from Minnesota originally and um, back in the Twin Cities which is Minneapolis St. Paul area I was an actress and a dancer and a choreographer so all of my uh, background was in live theater, live events, mm -hmm. and um, I had barely ever saw a movie because um, I was always just dealing with live performance elements. And I uh, was hired to choreograph a couple of TV commercials for Target, which home base is Minneapolis, and they were 100% dance. You think you know the Gap commercials from you know five seven years ago. And mm -hmm. so because it was 100% dance, I had to be there and kind of direct it, and I had to be there in the editing room and all of that. So that was really my first foray and introduction into the medium, and I found it really fascinating. Uh, this was in uh, the middle of winter, and it was, as you can well imagine, brutally cold and lots of snow, and I started to feel like the Twin Cities was you know, getting small. So I thought, well, I have a reel now. Maybe I should move to New York or L.A. 
And since it was the middle of winter, I thought, let's go to L.A. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a job. I didn't really have a place to stay. My mom had a second cousin. She called him. I could stay there for a week or so. And so, you know, I just got in the car with uh, my clothes in the back seat, 500 bucks in my pocket, and I drove out to L.A., and that was about 25 years ago. And Very cool. Yeah, so when I got here, it was initially to be an actress and a choreographer, and, you know, I got myself an agent, and I had a couple of small things, and choreographed a couple of Japanese commercials, and I began to realize very early on that I really needed to have more control over my career, so I thought, you know, I should learn to be a producer. I didn't know anything about producing films, so I began to produce workshops on how to produce film, and uh, it was 10 weeks long, and uh, each week I'd bring in a different guest lecturer, and I'd start with development, and financing and production and marketing and distribution and go through the whole process and I just kept repeating that for you know almost two three years and I took the class so I learned I produced the class so I earned some money and because I had to bring in a guest lecturer every week I had to comb the trades and begin to build up my Rolodex and who the players were out there, cold call, and invite them to come. And, you know, I began to figure out who the players were. So after doing that for about two, two and a half, three years, I decided, well, you know, that's kind of my BA in film, so let's get into the real world. I'm a creative soul at heart. So I thought, well, I'd like to be an assistant to a creative person, a writer, a director. I couldn't get arrested. Finally, I got a job as a secretary to the uh, president of a distribution company. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I didn't know anything about marketing and distribution, but he didn't care. I knew how to type. I could take, you know, shorthand, etc. So I ended up being at a company called Hemdale. Now, they should have been another Miramax or New Line. Um, the, the three years that I was there, we won 12 Academy Awards, Platoon, Hoosiers, Last Emperor, Salvador, and I was really, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was right there on the cutting edge with a company that was not only figuring out how to finance movies, but they were also financing their own P&A, or what's called print and advertising money, so then they would hire a studio or do a rent system to release their movies, so Mm -hmm. this back then was a pretty new model. So they were able to be in control not only of the production, but also have approval rights over the marketing and distribution of their movies. So that became a really interesting model for me that when I went out on my own for the first time and started my first company, that was the business model that I did. And I was successful in raising a lot of money, mainly from the Japanese. It's interesting to kind of follow where the money comes from, Japan and then Germany and then sail lease back UK and, and China and India now and, and all of that. But back then it was from the Japanese and that was the business model that I used and that's how I became the executive producer and financed Fried Green Tomatoes. It was one of those projects that I didn't have anything to do with the development of it um, but I did finance the production and finance the print and advertising money, so that guaranteed us a theatrical release through Universal. Once Universal saw the dailies, though, they came back to the table and renegotiated their position so that they were putting up a majority of the print and advertising money 
and uh, as they say, the rest is history. It was not only a, 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 a quality piece, but it also was a financial success. And then after oh. that, I decided I want to get back to really uh, more of the creative side. And um, I put together a development company and developed a feature film and got a TV series on. And then I met Lori McCreary, who was just beginning to launch a company called Revelations Entertainment with mm-hmm. partner, actor Morgan Freeman. And they were looking for a kind of president type. And since my uh, professional background in film was really a lot about marketing and distribution and financing, you know, they brought me in and I helped them launch that company. And I was COO for the first, I think, five years. And then I went back out and launched my own company, Gillen Group, which is what I have right now. So the reason I wanted to kind of take that five minutes to go through there is, you know, and, and certainly through the next hour, the questions you'll be asking me and the answers and the expertise that I'll be trying to impart to everybody. I mean, I've had to learn that myself. It was I didn't get it from a book. I didn't get it from going to a school or USC film school or whatever. I just was out in the field and had to learn it. And if I can go from being a dancer in Minnesota to financing fried green tomatoes, anyone can do it if they put their mind to it and have perseverance. And so, uh, I agree with that. Absolutely. So I'm kind of a rare combination right now of a real world experience consultant and producer as well as a coaching master. So um, I, I call myself the entertainment industry's premier coach sultan. I'm trained as a coach as well. And my Gillen group, there's a division that we have that is a consulting to independent producers, like many people who are probably listening and will listen to this, you know, helping them write their business plan, run their financial projections and comparables, find the right distribution partners, all those things that I've kind of had to learn, you know, in the street. I can now partake and give that as a consulting service, as well as I'm a trained leadership and executive coach. So it's a really interesting combination. Almost definitely. And it also gives a lot of latitude in the field to be able to have wear many hats as well in that. And also you are an author as well. Yes. Yes, I am. So tell me what actually inspired you to put the knowledge from – head form to book form like have the information and has the information changed over the years or so tell me a little bit about that sure sure well let's break that up into two yep. questions so um first of all was you know what inspired me it's well actually it was offered to me <laughs> so um i bought a company called entertainment business group which was a consulting firm and the two mm-hmm. at the time john lee and rob holt had written a book called The Producer's Business Handbook, and they had done the first um, the first edition and the second edition. And then I bought the company because they went off onto different routes. So they said if ever the editor, publisher wants a third edition, you can do the third edition. So the publisher came back and said, we want a third edition. So that really was the main motivating thing. But what I found along the way was you know, because it was so hard for me to get this information, I really thought, well, this is a great opportunity for me to disseminate it and get it into a form that is really understandable and break it down into pieces that, you know, you can layer it uh, uh, as a base and just kind of build from there. 
I have this gift as a teacher, and it started out, you know, being a dance instructor, and now it is in the film industry as well. I just know how to take really complicated issues and and and, and break them down and begin to build so that you can really understand the process. And that's an ability I was able to bring to the book. And another thing that was really interesting, I've actually written two books right now. Uh, the one you're referring to, the Producers Business Handbook, was was co-branded by Variety. And the second one, uh, Creatives for the in the Entertainment Industry or something like that, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact wording of it, was co-branded by the American Film Market. And these two are giants in the indie film world. So to have my name associated with them and co-branding my book was huge. And it's kind of like the good housekeeping stamp of approval. So as a consultant that I'm a published author two times with Variety and American Film Market is, is really helpful to building my business. And um, secondarily, you know, that I can give that information to people in such a way that they don't have to go through years and years of being in the trenches and trying to figure it out themselves. They can grab a book and really get the information very concisely. So that's really uh, the answer to that first question about what inspired me. And then, you know, the information that has changed. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think it's five years since I wrote the book and four years since it's been published. And it's changed in many, many ways. Um, I've seen a lot of the um, indie film making really migrate over to TV, mm -hmm. whether that be network or cable or Internet Certainly with the digital technology, you know, both in the ability for anyone to make a film now as well as to be able to deliver that film to OTT, which stands for over the top on the Internet or video on demand and, and streaming video. And, in, and, and also in the financing models, we've added advertisers now coming into financing movies like Hasbro and Procter & Gamble and Ford. Uh, we've added crowdfunding both on the donation side and the equity side. Retailers have now come into financing, Amazon, Walmart, Hulu. And another really breakthrough area, and we can get into maybe a little bit deeper, and I'll give you some websites to Absolutely. check out. Absolutely. Virtual reality. I was just reading an article from my top entertainment attorney, Sky Moore, and I'm quoting him right now. While media stocks teeter on the perceived victor between cable and OTT, a challenger is coming that will knock them both out of the ring, and that is virtual reality, since it can be delivered by both mediums. And there's really two types of virtual reality that we're looking at right now. One is, you know, where you're wearing the headset. Yes. Um, you know, and so we all know the mantra has been, I want to watch what I want, when I want. But now with the, the headset and the virtual reality, you're going to be able to be where you want, when you want. And then the second level for virtual reality that you'll start to hear about is there's entertainment centers that are going to be, be being built that will be these 360-degree immersions. So sounds will be in 3D. The seats will be in 4D, which will move with the visuals, the adding wind and spray effects. So... It's changing the whole experience from watching to being part of the story. Oh, definitely. The, uh, the idea of immersion is going to be an absolute bonus to it as well because it will allow you also to embody the characters a lot more as well. well. You and, almost become or you do become yeah. a character. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the wild, wild west out there. And it's uh, quite exciting. So uh, also in the industry, what kind of 
like preferences in terms of you when you work with people do you have like certain kinds of filmmakers you love to work with or budget ranges um well i guess with regard to the types of filmmakers i would say they kind of i look for two things one is that they're what i call a balanced producer or a balanced filmmaker and what i mean by that is it's it's three legs to that stool one is mm-hmm. they, under, they understand and embrace being a fiduciary. So they are concerned to return a profit to their investor and themselves and their company. Second is they embrace being a marketer. So they're really cognizant of creating projects with a commercial appeal to a known target audience. And I wouldn't get hung up on the word commercial so much as known target audience. And that could be a niche within a niche. But you know you're creating your project for. And also, secondarily in the marketer, is that you're securing some domestic and or foreign distribution commitments before you begin principal photography. So you know you've got some form of distribution before you spend all of your investors' money. And then the third leg of the stool, and this is where I find most everybody really sings and dances and very strongly, is being a visionary. You know, defining and living a vision for your career and each of your projects. You know, that where your passion is, the who you are being. So it's a fiduciary, a marketer, and a visionary. So when I say a balanced filmmaker, balanced producer, you're you're balancing these three things all the time equally. Not one or two is taking over the other. And then the second thing I look for in the certain kinds of filmmakers I like to work with is someone I want to be in business with. <laughs> you know? Um, do I want to spend the next five, seven years with you? When I was CEO of Morgan Freeman Company, we came up with this seven-year question. It's actually in two parts, and here's, here, here, here how it goes. So we would read a screenplay, a book, or whatever, something that we decided, wow, this is a great project, let's make this. Then we would say, okay, let's ask the seven-year question, and this is it. If we spent seven years to get this project made, would it be worth the journey? And we would have to answer a resounding yes. Now the second part of that seven year question is a little more difficult. If we had spent seven years trying to get this project made and we did not, would it still have been worth the journey? Now to answer <laughs> yes to that, you gotta be doing it for reasons that are answering your values. So I want to be in business with people that are that passionate about their projects. So those are the two areas that I look at, being a balanced filmmaker and somebody I want to be in business with for five years. And to be able to create, uh, to to be able to have that long-term relationship, to be able to say it's not uh, only about the money, it's also about making it, you know, you're doing it, uh, it's like, yes, you are doing it, you have to be aware that there is an ROI to uh, to the investor and you have to be a responsible filmmaker in regards to that, but you have to also be able to understand as well that, you know what, it's not a one trick pony, it is a, it is a marathon. Right, exactly. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yep. Typically, that's what it is. It's, it's a long-term game plan, and you can't, you can't let the no's stop you. You want to learn from the no's, but you don't let them stop you. And then I think you asked about the budget ranges. Yeah. 
So with regard to the budget ranges, um, I reverse engineer into budget. Okay, so I look at what's the genre, how large is that market, who is the audience, how expensive is it to get to that audience, do they go to the theater first, are they on the internet mainly, you know, so I look at things like that. Then, you know, is it CGI heavy? You know, um, it, or is it a genre where it's kind of a flip it on its ear horror with a first time director? So all those things come into play as far as the budget range. So I don't just, I'm not like my budget range is this and only this because it's really dictated by the genre and reverse engineering into who the market and the audience is. And I've always been an indie, so, um, you know, uh, budget ranges, I, I also look at can I raise the equity that's necessary, you know, with a combination of tax incentives or pre-sales and estimates. Mm -hmm. So that certainly becomes part of the, the equation as far as the budget ranges go. Oh, I can understand. Absolutely. It's like, and so then are you looking at projects that are more star driven or elements driven? So you were saying it's also element driven, but are you willing to work with like new up and coming talents or if the project itself has newer talent that comes forward? And like, do you consider them as bankable? Well, I wouldn't say they're as bankable, but for me, the number one consideration always is the material it's I'm screenplay writer driven okay you know stars mm -hmm. typically aren't gonna mess up great material but a star cannot save bad material true okay that being said stars are still a huge help in getting most projects financed so you know you know I I wouldn't say I'm star driven but it certainly becomes part of the equation, but I am material driven. Because without not good, not great, but exceptional material, it's going to fall apart somewhere else along the line. And then, you know, am I willing to look at new and upcoming talent as bankable? Well, the, the key word, I mean, the key word here is bankable. What's bankable mean? For me, bankable means the buyers and the distributors are excited. They can potentially draw pre-sales or estimates that are going to cover the budget risk. So, you know, new, never before seen or done it before, aren't they're not going to do that. Up mm -hmm. and coming, up and coming absolutely might be able to do that. So it's a matter of really looking at how recognizable to an audience are there, are they? And then, you know, the combination of willing to take a chance or not willing to take a chance. But I do many times take a chance on first time you know, directors. Um, and you can certainly get a great combination in your actor talent with some unknowns and some, you know, marketable talent as well. So it, it's a combination of all of the above. But first and foremost, is the material great? And do I believe in the person delivering it, whether that be the producer or the director or maybe an actor who wants to play a certain role? You know, do I think they can deliver the goods? And if they can, and I do, and it's great material, then I'm many times willing to you know, really work around those other elements. So those are kind of the red flags. Well, then how do we empower them? You know, what do we need to put mm -hmm. around them so that we do get the yeses that we need, whether that be from the buyer, or the investor, the distributors, etc. So uh, also filling in all the blanks of the elements as well to be able to balance it out. Right. And, and by elements, what do you mean? So if it's a newer director, you would have a, a more experienced cinematographer that right. would be able to be with them, so to balance it out. 
Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Or bring in a known director that would be an executive producer, but, you know, they have a lot of great credits and they're willing to kind of mentor or oversee. There's a lot of ways to get, absolutely get around that and empower them. At, at this point in your career, um, is it still really fun? Do you still have that same enthusiasm maybe that you did when you first started or are you at a place now where it's just old hat? I think I have more enthusiasm. Because when I first started, I was so scared. Because, as I told you, I just I, I got out there and I mean, the first movie I made was Fried Green Tomatoes. <laughs> oh no! Right? I mean, hello. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I thought any minute they're you know they probably did they probably you know it's just like who is this girl, you know. <laughs> I well, she's somebody who has the money. <laughs> he who has the gold rules. Um, yeah. But. You know, I was I was really afraid. I'm I'm not that I'm not afraid now. You know, I have a certain I don't know everything, obviously, but I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And and I bring people in where I don't know or I don't want to know or I don't want to do it. Um, but it's actually more fun now than it was back then because of that. You you know what I really enjoy about listening to you speak is a lot of times you you talk to people from the industry. And they try to make you feel like this is something very distant, something that you can't do. And what I like about the way that you speak about it is you really empower people to want to, you know, look into doing, you know, what you're doing and that, you know, there is a place for you if you, you know, willing to do the work. What do you, what do you think about your, your character that makes you feel that way? I guess because, uh, I didn't know, and I didn't let anything really stop me very much. But I did get stopped a lot of times. Um, I did get wounded and hurt, and we all get that, I'm not good enough, I don't know enough, you know, whatever, whatever that gremlin voice is in your head um, that can stop you. And many times it sort of did, but I always pushed through somehow. And... You know, if I can do it any, like I said, that's why I start where I started in the conversation today was, you know, I'm a dancer from, you know, Minnesota, from White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Who am I to come and, and finance and produce fried green tomatoes? I mean, if I can, anybody can. You can figure it out. You can, the information is there to be had. And it is complicated and it is time consuming and it, and it can seem overwhelming and yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. But... Just keep pushing through. Figure it out. Bring on the right team members. You know, you can do it. Did you take anything from the dancing arena and apply it to what you do in the film in industry? Um, yeah. Discipline. Mm -hmm. um, doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And now all of a sudden you do have that double turn. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Just because you didn't have it year one, year two, doesn't mean you're not going to have it in year three. Fall down, pick yourself up, do it again. Fall down, pick yourself up, do it again. Fall down, pick yourself up, do it again. Um, and from my acting, um, a lot of improv classes. So when I go into a room, I've been trained to take the onerous off of me and put it on the other person. And what are their needs? What's the communication I'm getting from them? What's the body language I'm getting from them? How do I match their rhythms? So when, when I, whether I'm on the phone with somebody on a pitch meeting, 
I really try to match their rhythm because sometimes you'll get people that, oh, how you doing? What's going on? How was your summer break? And then you get somebody, okay, what's and they're picking up the phone, they're answering the phone, and what's next? And what do you have for me? Well, you got to get in there and you got to deliver like that as well. So I've been trained with improv and acting to do that. So I bring an incredible amount of skills that way. And acting again, I mean, I've had to get up in front of audiences, you know, most of my young adult life and and remember my dialogue, forget my dialogue, mess up, get through it, um, and know that at the, at the end of the day, you're going to get through it. So it's okay. And what's the worst that can happen? You fall on your face, you pick yourself up, and you continue on. That's the worst. You're not going to die. You know, so no. I've learned an incredible amount of skills that I bring to being a producer. Mm. Absolutely. As well as also a, a consultant. So as a coaching consultant, like, what would the criteria uh, be if you'd want to place, like, when taking on a client, for example, in the consulting field? Well... Um, I, I like to work with creative entrepreneurs, okay? So that would be people that are ready, willing, and able to take on blasting their career or, or company into this next phase and really turning their passion into action so that they're going to stand out from the competition. That's number one. Number two is i got to get a sense that they're going to embrace being a balanced producer. If they're only about, i got to make this movie, I don't care about the investors, I don't care about anything else, I don't care if there's an audience for it, all I want to do is make my movie, I'm not the right person for them. Mm. So those yeah. are the two things. Oh, okay. Yeah, because then it becomes a passion project, it doesn't become then a really balanced project. It, well, everything should be a, a passion project. That's why I call it being a balanced producer or filmmaker. And, oh, and no, I don't mean it in that way. I mean, like, as in where you're not even considering the actual other side of the coin as well, that people need a return on the investment. And Right. And there are certain genres, like, for instance, the faith uh, arena. A lot of times the investor are more interested in getting out a certain message, maybe in doc some documentaries as well. So th they, there could be a, uh, certain genres and things where... The fiduciary is not necessarily the most important or needs to be given that much equal weight. But for me, I think it still does because if you want to continue to be a documentary filmmaker, you want those investors to get their money back so they're going to let you roll it over into another project so that you can have a career. You're not just a, you know, a one-pony trick. Absolutely. And like, do you, in terms of your clients, like, what's the most common issue that you find that comes up with each of your clients, and how are some of the best ways for them to overcome it? Uh, issue. I would say I'm going to break it up into two areas because I'm a consultant and a coach, and sometimes I correct combine the two. So, as a consultant, again, I go back to it's. I, I butt up against, you know, whether they want to be balanced or not. So, you know, they say they want critique and they say they want help with this, that, and the other thing. And then I start to give it and then I realize that they really don't. Mm -hmm. um, one, one example, and this, this happens a lot. Um, I'll be hired to do, read a screenplay, uh, pull film comparables, and then run financial projections about how that particular film, you know, might play out in the marketplace and the potential for its return on investment. And 
when you pull up comparables, we start with like 30 different movies, okay? And we wheedle it down to like the top 10, 12 or so. And I was working, and this happened more than once, but I was working with a particular group of people, and they had a lot of low-performing um, comparables, but they were perfect for the genre, for the budget range, you know, for the market demographic they were going after, and, and they demanded that we take off all the low numbers and only leave the high numbers so that we would show these breakthrough potential return on investment. And ah. I said, I gave them their money back and I said, no, I'm not, that's not right. You're giving not only false hope to yourself, but worse, false hope to your potential investors. Because that's not the facts. And if you're not willing to look at it like a fiduciary, then I don't want to work with you. And I gave them their money back and left. So, as a consultant, really, I look for people who are going to understand being balanced. And, you know, that that's a big issue for, for most filmmakers. And then as a coach, the thing that really almost everybody needs to overcome, and I was just saying this about myself, is the that gremlin voice. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not connected enough. I'm not young enough. You know, all of these little voices in your head, you know, are a very common issue when it comes to coaching that we need to work on and overcome. For sure. It's like in, a lot of times people get in their brain because also a lot of people uh, in, I won't, uh, it's like, I won't say it's a majority of people, but there are people who it's like they don't get the encouragement from the outside. So they don't understand how to encourage themselves from within. Right. Right. And, and we all have a gremlin. Well, what's your gremlin? My ex-girlfriend. What's the voice in your head that stops you all the time? My ex-girlfriend. What, what's the voice? What's it say to you? Uh, you need to quit. <laughs> That's usually uh, what, what You need was. to quit? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Or that? It probably the... It's like, uh, why would... It, I be, uh, it's like, uh, why would I more than likely be... The person, it's like there's a million uh, films out there. Why should my film be out there? Why me? Yeah, why me? Why should it be me? Mm-hmm. And then I try and supersede that in my head with, well, why shouldn't it be? That's right. Very good. That, that's excellent. That's exactly right. Why shouldn't it be me? So you can twist the question around into a positive. If, it's kind of that... And it's sort of funny because I use that straight talk saying in my head, if you don't toot your own horn, who toots it for you? Right. That movie with Dolly Parton? Say that again if you don't what? If you don't toot your own horn, nobody's yeah. going to toot it for you. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And but, but that's a very, I mean, everybody has some form of that gremlin. And one is to really, the first step, which you both have done beautifully, is, is you, you're, you recognize what it's saying to you. Right. The second step is you change what it's saying to you, which, Odette, you just ex gave a perfect example of. Why not me? So you can, the gremlin, you know, is something that started probably very, very early on in your, your youth. It somehow came up and, you know, we could do these exercises and get back to where that started, but... It, it goes back there, and, and you can change what the gremlin is saying to you. And it's the, the thing is you don't want to stop the gremlin because you never will. You'd never stop the voice in your head. So 
I don't try to stop the voice in your head. I try to change or give you the ability to change what they're saying. So you give them a new thing to say, just like you did that. Why not you? Because it's important to make sure that no matter what the voice is, is if you listen to the neg voice, then you're always going to hold yourself back to that what, uh, to that point. It's yes. like you have to sometimes say, you know what? Okay, so it was uh, a misstep. Okay, yes. Okay, you got uh, a little step behind. Something happened. You know what? Push forward. Learn what you uh, what happened there. Push forward. Don't give up on it. Right. And, and, and it's good to know that the gremlin at some point was really helpful to you and mm -hmm. protected you in some form, but it's not helpful anymore. And that's why you just need to change what the gremlin is saying. Yeah, and then the next uh, thing that has to be overcome at that point is then the, okay, so let's get your steps of how to. Like, for example, could you tell me about like the different sets of forms of finance that you deal with? Oh my goodness, yes, and I could, uh, when I do this, I usually do a four-hour class, but I'll try to get through it, <laughs> <laughs> kind of concisely here. Um, there's about eight different uh, financial models or pieces of the puzzle that you can pull in to, to finance your film. We'll say film. It could be a web episode. It could be whatever, but we'll just say film for, for the sake of um, conciseness. And um, there's what's called estimates. Okay, this typically is, is with your foreign sales agent or what's now referred to as your international sales agent, and you'll see that listed as ISA, international sales agent. So mm -hmm. they'll give you um, a, a piece of paper where they'll break down all the territories, um, Eastern Europe, Europe, Japan, Asia, you know, all of these territories, and there'll be an ask price and a take mm -hmm. price, a high and a low estimate of what they think your finished movie will garner, okay? And that then is referred to as your minimum guarantee for all rights for that territory. So that's a sheet of paper that then gets listed with all of these territories and comes up with a total at the bottom of the page with the high ask and the low take. And that's called estimates. Now you can use those in a number of different ways. Let's just look at two possible ways. One okay. is that could be part of your business plan of how you are going to show investors how you're going to be risk mitigating their investment. Here's your fiduciary side. So you could have the estimates from your international sales agent as an addendum, an appendix, an exhibit to your business plan showing that your budget is one million, the foreign estimates are 850,000 so that the risk then becomes 150,000 or a little more than that because of fees and such but you're beginning to build a case for why to invest in your movie. Another way that you can deal with estimates, and this is uh, a lot more difficult, um, and only the mm -hmm. best well-heeled producers can do this, but they can go to a bank or a fund and take those estimates, and some banks and some funds will cash flow 50% uh, value of those estimates. So if the estimates are a million dollars, They'll reduce it by 50% and look at giving you a loan of $500,000 against those estimates. So that's okay, estimates. Another term for that is gap or gap financing. Another form of financing uh, a production is called a pre-sale. Again, this is difficult, but people should know what this means and how this works. 
So a pre-sale, again, let's refer back to your international sales agent. They go to one of the film markets, AFM, Cannes, Berlin. They have their booth. They, ha they have your uh, project. It's not made yet. Okay, that's why this is much more difficult. So you really need an exceptional screenplay. You need a known director. You need a bankable cast. You need an appropriate budget for that level of genre and cast. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably have a poster, probably have, you know, a sizzle reel of some kind. And they pitch it to the different territories. So Germany is interested and they pre-sell Germany. A certain German distributor says, I love this project. I want to take it off the marketplace so I don't get in a bidding war later when it's a completed movie. So I'm going to pre-buy all uh, German-speaking um, Germany rights for, let's just say, $100,000. They sign mm -hmm. a, an agreement and they'll put down typically 20% or $20,000. Again, that contract becomes a piece of collateral you can take to a bank or a fund. And depending on the credit worthiness of the German distributor, they will look at cash flowing or loaning you the other remaining $80,000. And that then also becomes a piece of your financing for your production. Another uh, piece of financing you can use is called tax incentives. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about this. Um, yes. California finally has a, 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 a vastly improved tax incentives. There's about 40 or 43 different states in the United States right now that has um, tax incentives. They either fall into a, a cash rebate, refundable, transferable, non-refundable, and non-transferable. Uh, we don't have the time to get into all of the, you know, the whys and the wherefores of all those different models. But if if you use only one other piece besides equity to finance your project, even if it's low budget, you should use tax incentives. And once you've broken out your budget and every line item you think will qualify and you get certified by that particular state, that bottom line number of the tax incentive that they're going to give back to you after you complete your project you can again go to a bank or a fund and they will cash flow 80 to 90 percent value of those tax incentives and that 80 percent 90 percent becomes another cash piece that you can put in your production financing so now we've got estimates as possible we got pre-sales as possible we got tax incentives as possible another source is retailers the netflix the hulu plus the amazons I mean, just mm -hmm. three years ago, Netflix started streaming its first original series, Lily Hammer. The company is now planning 320 hours of original programming in 2015. That's three times what it offered just last year. So, you know, wow. they've become a huge source of other, you know, of financing projects. So you, you want to look at that. And Amazon recently brought in Ted Hope as the head of their film division and Bob Bernie is head of distribution and they're acquiring or producing 12 features a year budgets ranging from about 5 to 25 million to be released theatrically and then within a month or two made exclusive to Amazon Prime so these retailers are providing an important source of financing if you're going to use this type of collateral if you're going to use estimates or pre-sales or an, uh, an agreement from Amazon or whatever you're going to need an entertainment bank or a fund to cash flow the value. And if you're going to do a bank to do that, they're going to require you to have a completion bond and a collection account. Okay, So a completion bond basically is an insurance policy that states 
you know, we've looked at every line item in the budget. We've vetted out your director and your key uh, personnel, talent, and we are guaranteeing that this movie will be delivered on time, on budget, at the quality of which all the stakeholders are expecting. If not, we're going to come in, take over, and make sure it is. Or if it's so far gone, we'll return everybody their investment dollars. So that's a bond. And they're also going to require you to have what's called a collection account. A collection account is a third-party escrow account. So it's mainly on the international side or your foreign sales. So instead of, you, you know, the example we use is we sell all German rights to a German distributor. Instead of the money going then to your international sales agent, it bypasses them entirely and goes into this protected third-party escrow account called a collection account. And all the stakeholders, the producers, the directors, anybody that has net profits, any equity players, distributors, they've all agreed upon what's called the waterfall. Who gets paid in what order at what percentage? And so then this collection account pays all that out. It's a huge risk mitigating factor that you should have even if you have a low budget movie. And it protects all the stakeholders. It protects you if your international sales agent goes belly up or gets bought by somebody else or there's a dispute with the different parties. It's, it's a huge, wonderful risk mitigating thing you should all look into. Another piece is talent, what I call talent and vendor profit equity. So, for instance, if you have a project that's really high in CGI special effects, mm -hmm. let's say that if you were to just bid it out, it would be a million dollars. You go and you try to do a creative deal with the special effects house and you say, instead of us paying you out of our budget a million dollars, let's just pay you 250000 and you defer or write off the seven hundred and fifty, and I'll give you a big piece of the back end. And I'll give you an, an association with, I'll give you an executive producer title. You know, you can do creative deals like that with effects houses, post-production, music, etc. And you can sometimes do those types of deals with, with your lead talent. But if you're going to do it with the talent, you really need what I call a double and triple bottom line approach. So what that means is that not only uh, is it an exceptionally written role mm -hmm. for them, but maybe it's an issue that's important to them. You know, maybe they're all about climate change. Maybe they're all about bullying. Maybe they're all about LGBT rights. Whatever that is, you try to find the right talent that you're giving them a role that really has a lot of uh, exceptional character arcs as well as it hits another bottom line for them. The next piece of financing that now we can look at is advertisers. So this yes. is a, a, a fairly new trend, is advertisers coming into giving you equity and in, investment in your movie, sometimes marketing dollars as well. And the reason they want to do that is, you know, nobody watches commercials on TV anymore. You DVR it, etc. So they're seeking a way to integrate their product into the message that they want their product to be in a way that they can control it in your movie. And they even have dedicated divisions now and even new companies are springing up that is all about branding. So for them, again, it's that triple bottom line. One, they uh, instead of spending advertising dollars, so instead of buying $500,000 for a one-minute ad, which they'll never get that $500,000 back, they can invest in your movie. And if it does perform, they could possibly get it back. So they have the ability to get their money back. They have the ability to advertise their brand. 
and they will con have control over the content. So they're going to have approval over how their product is placed in your movie. Examples, mm -hmm. you know, examples Hasbro with Battleship and Transformers, Red Bull's done this a lot. Procter and Gamble and Walmart recently sponsored a TV series with family programming. Um, Swarovski Crystal uh, has their own entertainment division, and they did Romeo and Juliet. So product placement is just not good enough anymore. And so this is a new way of, of getting advertisers and brands in your movie. And then finally, there's crowdfunding. Most everybody probably listening to this or will be listening to this knows the donation-based crowdfunding. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. a donation. You know, they aren't going to get their money back. They don't have any rights. They have no profits. You give them a T-shirt, whatever. Um, that's Indiegogo and Kickstarter and um, Crowdster.co and a number of companies like that out there. Well, the new piece of crowdfunding is more associated with the equity side of things. And this just came into the marketplace over the last year because of what's called the JOBS Act, which stands for Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. And mm -hmm. there's a couple of new rule changes. Uh, they're called Title II, Title III, and Title IV. And with Title II, you can now do general solicitation um, to get accredited investors to invest in your movie, whereas before you had to be introduced to them, you had to know them. Now you can cold call, take out ads, um, have a, uh, an ad on the side of a bus, you know, whatever you want to do. And then there's something called Title IV, which is also called Reg A+, and that doesn't stand for the music Reg A, but regulation. Mm -hmm. Reg A+, and basically that's like a mini IPO. So instead of selling units like you do with the private placement memorandum or offering, you're actually selling stock in your single picture company to, to um, fund your movie. And I, I'm just barely touching upon all of this, um, but I hope people get enough and jot some of the things down and start to go on the Internet and find different um, other sources and webinars and articles and really begin to educate yourself to these other opportunities. So those are all the different models and pieces that you can pull together. So when somebody says, well, what's your finance plan? That's what they're asking you. How much equity do you need? How much are you going to use tax incentives? Are you doing any crowdfunding? doing any pre-sales, how about the estimates, you're bringing in an advertiser. So in a movie, it could be one, three, or all seven or eight of them. So it really just depends. And that then becomes what's called your capital stack. And that's another kind of cool term out there. Yeah, and definitely the capital stack has differed from previous years. Now that having this opportunity of being able to have accredited investors have a much more open platform. Does that then change also the regulations? Uh, I, 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 are you referring to like the SEC regulations? Correct. Yes, it does. Um, in the past, for the last 80 years, when you would go raise equity to make your film, you would put together what's called a private placement memorandum or offer, mm -hmm. and you would sell units. And your investors would be passive investors they would buy however many units. Um, if you got enough of those units, you would be able to have the right amount of money to go make your movie. You could only go to accredited investors. An accredited investor means that they're worth a million dollars. 
uh, not including their house, or they've made $200,000 for the last two years. You had to know who they were, okay? Or you had to be introduced mm -hmm. to them by somebody directly on your team. Um, and they had to fill out a form, which was part of your offering, that um, they were guaranteeing that, yes, I am an accredited investor. So that was called 506B under the SEC rules and regulations. The mm -hmm. new Jobs Act has created under Title II 506C. And going back to what I said earlier, now you can do general solicitation for these accredited investors. Okay? It, you don't have to know them already. So you, you're open to the, you know, 9 million millionaires that are out in the United States alone. You know, you can start to try to reach out to them through general solicitation and advertising and code calling. What's changed is you have to vet and prove that they are accredited. They're no longer just checking off a box saying, yes, I am. Okay, so the issuer, which is the producer, has to have some kind of checks and balance in place whereby you're vetting that they are accredited investors. So that's how the SEC rulings have changed. So you've got to, you know, as in everything, you need a really smart entertainment attorney. And if you're going after some of these financing models like the 506B, 506C, and Reg A+, you need an SEC attorney as well. So if there's only one team member you can pay for, it's attorney. You don't want to make any mistakes about how you put, put these documents together and how you approach people. As well as also, from what I've heard as well, that they're also looking at um, deregulating some of them, to, like to make some accredited investors non-accredited investors, or have you heard anything more about that? Well, there's a Title Three which is really truly equity crowdfunding. And that means that you could go out and uh, take money from accredited and non from anybody, basically. But um, the, the limit raises $1 million And the, the, the last time I checked, um, the SEC had put out some, some sample or model rules and regulations, and they were so onerous that nobody would ever do it or use it. Um, so with the Reg A Plus, though, which is selling stock to raise money, um, you can take money from accredited and non-accredited. It's uh, there's a lot of SEC filings and forms and different things, and it's you know to do a, an appropriate mini IPO or Reg A Plus, you're going to need about two hundred thousand dollars just to get it into the marketplace and do this. So it's really for you know well-heeled and larger budget projects or slates than for maybe some of the people that are listening to this. Mm -hmm. Which uh, does make a lot of sense. And also, uh, just to touch a little bit also on our crowdsourcing, um, this, uh, this is also becoming as well an important part as well as the crowdfunding uh, for a lot of filmmakers, correct? Yes, let's let's uh, give terminology to the words we're using. Yeah. Um, and I think this is what you're referring to. Crowdfunding is actually getting money from people or donations in order to make your project. Crowdsourcing is really about building a fan base. Is that how you're using yes. it? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So um, crowdsourcing and building that fan base is really all about early stage marketing in your project and everybody needs to be doing this now because 
the buyers, the distributors, etc., expect you to come with, with, with these things in place already many, many times. And you do want that. Um, so I think that, you know, really understanding how to crowdsource, build your fan base. And I, I certainly advise my clients and certainly for myself, I always have a line item in my production budget that I call early stage marketing or marketing so that I can begin to crowdsource and build my fan base as I'm in pre-production and production, etc. So I can deliver to the distributors um, a following of some kind um, or information about uh, this many people in Austin are waiting to see my movie. You know, whatever any of that is. And, and certainly the way that um, I do casting now, um, not only do I look at their marketability, typically like an IMDb Pro might, but I look at their Twitter following, their mm -hmm. Facebook following. And one of the key things I'm also looking at when I start to put together, you know, when it's younger, typically younger actors, I, I look at YouTube and Viners. Okay. And who are the hot people there? There are companies springing up right now that are all about finding, developing, and packaging the YouTube and Viners that are the hottest right now and finding the right projects for them. So that is something that, you know, I look into when I'm building my database for different casting things that I'm doing. So I highly recommend that you begin to follow that as well. Um, uh, there's something called tubefilter.com, and mm -hmm. that's a great way, you know, get on their newsletter, you know, and, and you'll get updates on what's going on in that whole world. Also, if you want to find out who, who has the biggest followers of the Viners and the YouTubers, there's a website called rankzoo.com, R-A-N-K-Z-O-O.com, and it'll, and it'll tell you, you know, listing from one on down, I think maybe it only goes to the top 100 or so, but, um, you know, the people who have the most followers. So you can see who's hot and who's not. And then if you have a project that, you know, um, maybe one of them is gay and you've got a project with a gay lead and that, that might be appropriate for them. So, again, you're kind of thinking outside of the box and how you're going to market. And these would be termed up and coming, you know, and not necessarily the tried and true IMDB Pro type of name. So there's a lot of creative ways to go about this. Absolutely. And it's like, is it starting to become a more verifiable? Because also some financiers and distributors tend to look at it from social media perspectives and putting up social media pages as well as that. Are they starting to find it more valuable? How are they finding a way to be able to legitimize it versus, you know, people who it's like are trying to just fill their social media page to I think what you're following. asking about is really how do you understand the metrics and the Correct. analytics behind it all. So, you know, people have gotten very, very savvy to that. So, you know, followers as opposed to likes and just all that. So you've got to be very, very careful about you know, really stating correctly, you know, how big your, your followers or likes, your database, your analytics, your metrics are, because they can go look themselves and figure it out. So, you know, falsifying it doesn't work anymore. People are too smart for that. Yeah, and they're definitely getting much more savvier when oh, it's yeah. coming to uh, down to 
it's like genuine information versus trying to generate for that purpose. Exactly. Of mm, building you know, are a you fan base. Hype or are you real? Yeah. And also you were involved in many marketing campaigns over the years. Would you speak to the idea of how now filmmakers uh, are taking an active role in their marketing campaigns as well? Like, you know, they're by putting out the social media pages as well as also that. And it's like boosting their film profiles ahead with sales. And does it affect like the traditional campaigns or is it now working well with traditional campaigns? Well, you know, nobody knows for sure about any of this. It's a, as I said, it's a wild, wild west out there. But um, I think you absolutely need to be doing all this. There's, I th- there's a new um, title out there called the producer of uh, marketing and distribution, a PMD. You know, because there's just so much that they expect you to do and walk in with. You know. And you do need to be doing all that. And, and hopefully your brand is such that when you do the next movie and the next project and the next project, the brand is kind of, uh, it, the, each project is empowering the whole overall brand of things. So it, it, it does become very important to have that kind of following and to, you know, use those resources. And there's so much self-distribution going on right now. I mean, there's so many DIY resources uh, Quad flicks out in New York, the Quad Cinema in New York. They're closed right now because they're renovating, but they'll be open again in the fall. Um, you can self-distribute your movie through them and and um, have your movie open in New York for a five to seven day showing, and you retain a hundred percent of the box office. You know, and it gives you the opportunity to possibly have you know press screenings and press release and reviews, etc. You know, there's Tug which is a web-based sales tool that can book the theater, collect, and promote. You know, so there's so many things out there um, that you can be doing that you can bring to the distributor to show that there is uh, an audience for your movie. Um, And and I go back again to the second leg of the stool for me of the um, being a balanced producer is being a marketer. You need to know in development before you raise and certainly before you spend the money of your equity investors that there is a market for this and how big that is and how difficult it is to get to it and and how will you get to it that all needs to be part of your business plan and how you're pitching your investors absolutely because we're also becoming a more global market like with finance productions and it's like it's evolving you can no longer just think also um, theatrical and that's it you have to think multi-platform in terms of that in this day and age it's like understanding the legs that go beyond the legs that you want so do you feel that there's now being coming a more of a demand on the filmmakers and the audience taste because it's becoming quite so global and things like machinima vod different distribution platforms as well oh yes it can be very very confusing because there's so many opportunities. Before, you know, even like five years ago, you know, very seldom was the producer that involved or uh, was it that necessary to understand all of these potential platforms. Now you do. Um, and you need to understand how to market to those platforms. You need to how, how to understand to bring a following so that the, the platform themselves are going to be interested in your project. And nobody knows the answer that you've got people opening in the typical window with the theatrical and 
90 days later, the VOD, and then you've got, sometimes they open on VOD first, and then they'll go to theatrical, and then you have the day and date, and everybody's trying to figure it out and do different models and all of that, and, you know, nobody has the right answer. We're all just trying to <laughs> do the best we can, but there's so much more demand on the producer now to, to be all things to all people, and that's why I say that, um, you know, if you need to bring in other team members that understand it better or enjoy doing that piece of it do it you know it takes a village these days to get anything distributed marketed it in and and out into the marketplace and to hit the right audience and that village is starting to become quite the big village it's it's no longer just only the sales agent because a lot of people it's your sales agent it's marketing people it's quite uh, a few people that are coming out and coming forward into there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with uh, so many heads cooking in the kitchen, it's like uh, also you talked about uh, in your book also a while back as well as also presently regarding distribution and self-distribution. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the various forms that are now available to filmmakers? And like, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, that's, we're already past the seven o'clock hour, and and that's that's a yeah. a, a, a whole yes. hour unto itself. So, um, I think that just by my mentioning some of these things yes. like quad flicks and the tug, there's another thing called gather films. Um, Area twenty three. I'd look into. I'd look into the film collaborative. That they're a nonprofit devoted to distribution education, uh, and uh, you know for independent film. Um, that's such a weighted question and so many ways of coming at that that, you know, to try to begin to answer it in any form right now, I don't think we'd give any justice to us. So I, I, I really recommend you go to something like the Film Collaborative and start to educate yourself to all these different models that are out there. Absolutely. And as we're, uh, as we're slowly winding down, um, we both have one uh, quick last question for you as well. Um, what do you feel that the next big trend in terms of film is going to happen that you'd want to be involved in? Well, I think I've touched upon both of them right now, and I'm, you know, playing in that arena. One is virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to be the next huge trend. And um, there's a really cool company out there that I just started looking at today, and I recommend going to the website, The Void. Dot com void oh yeah and um, and looking at youtubers and viners and uh, being able to, I mean there's so many channels out there on YouTube and so many companies and full screen and just all of these different players and things you know that's why I said you know uh, get your newsletter from tube filter and begin to educate yourself to all these areas because I that's the future youtuber viners and virtual reality that's my summation um the, the last question I have for you is that I know you do a lot of work um, in inner city, uh, specifically Watts, California, which I, I've been connected with Watts myself uh, since I was a little kid. Um, tell us about that program and, um, and what you guys provide. Well, unfortunately, that program doesn't exist anymore. Uh-huh. Um, and it was something that um, we started, and, and I was chairman of the board and um, helped uh, run it for about 10 years. And um, it was hugely successful. We were in about uh, seven different high schools, a couple of different colleges, and, 
everyone that went through the program got into college, and many graduated. And it was so interesting. We had a reunion this summer, and met you know many of the kids that went through the program, and now they're adults, and they're policemen, and they're nurses, and and you know they have families, and you know they're part of the community, and and they've broken the cycle of what they were in, and it was just so heartfelt and heartwarming to see that. The performing arts, you know, because the basis of the program was the performing arts. We used the elixir of the performing arts to get the kids out, off, uh, out of the gangs, off the streets, back into high school and finishing high school and into college. And as I said, every single person that stayed with the program got into college and many graduated. And so it, it was very, very gratifying to, you know, been a participant of that. Um, but the program doesn't exist anymore at this point in time. But there's a wonderful documentary about it that you can go um, probably you know get at Netflix or Redbox or whatever called um, Colors Straight Up. It's a beautiful documentary. It'll show you all about the program. Thank you. Thank wow. you for asking, Ken. I really I haven't uh, talked about that in a while. Thank you. Yeah. And hopefully that there will be a form of resurrecting that program someday. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of, there's programs out there that are similar but different. Mm -hmm. uh, because the performing arts are important. Yes. You know, uh, you, you learn so much from being in a program like that. And certainly when you take, you know, the African American and the Latino that were on opposite gangs and were fighting each other in the streets and then all of a sudden they're on stage performing together and, and in the audience are their peers watching them just going whoa I mean that says much more than you know a policeman walking down the street right so. oh absolutely it does and also is there any uh, advice you'd want to impart to to fellow filmmakers that is our final thing before we yeah, we sign off. Sure, um, a couple things actually. Um, I hope you got from me, who's been here for twenty five odd years doing this, and I've had to learn some, you know, learn again and again, and now something new comes and redo this and relearn that. Never stop learning. Be excited by it. Okay, don't let it overwhelm you when the industry flips and changes and something new comes out. Be excited about it. Perseverance is huge. That's where that seven-year question comes in. And really embrace being a balanced filmmaker, a fiduciary, a marketer, and a visionary. And make it. I mean, with the technology that we have, anybody can make anything. Get out there. Start doing shorts. You know, there's, there's a lot of places. Sundance even began a program, a YouTube channel for shorts called The Screening Room. You know, and they're a vital calling card for young and new filmmakers. So, um, you know, get it out there, get it, start showing it, be a part of it. Shakespeare wrote all the world's a stage, okay? We all have something, mm -hmm. we all have something to say and a, and a story to share. I mean, that's primal, but you need a stage. And the stage has never been so crowded, okay? There's like 500,000 filmmakers worldwide. There's about 10,000 to 12,000 films made a year. Of that, only about 700 plus get MPAA rated in some form of release. And of that, about 200 get a decent enough release to return all of their investment. 
So that's kind of the crowded stage that you're on. So you really have to embrace being a balanced filmmaker and you got to begin to define and articulate what your competitive edge is, what makes you and your project unique, and then persevere. And that's absolutely. And Anne Marie, how can people get a hold of you? Um, they can um, go to my website at Gillen Group LLC.com. They can mm -hmm. email me at amgillen. That's G-I-L-L-E-N at Gillen Group LLC.com. Perfect. And Kente, how can they get a hold of you? You can get me at Kente F. And as well as you can uh, go to Indie Radio, indyradio.org, and you can hear all of our programming. And uh, that's the best way to get me. Fantastic. And I can be reached at the, both the website, pastlivesproductionsinc.net, as well as also can get me on Facebook, as well as also on iHeartRadio, indyradio.org, uh, as well as on LinkedIn as well. And thank you ever so much, Emery. It's like, I wish that we had it like five more hours, honestly, because it's like, it's amazing. And I hope that you would be willing to come back for us again. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me, guys. Right. Thank you, and have a wonderful, wonderful evening. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, well, that concludes this uh, episode. Uh, um, next week is the holiday, so we won't be on, but, uh, you know, we have some great programs, I know, coming up, and looking forward to it. And Shana Tova to all uh, who are celebrating uh, Rosh Hashanah and for all of us who are uh, as, uh, well also um, re uh, may we rest in peace Wes Craven yes yes uh, rest in peace Wes Craven and also happy birthday thank you yeah. <laughs> yes over the weekend I, I aged <laughs> like a fine wine I just got one more Merlot in my ears <laughs> <laughs> I love that I love that. All right, so I guess we'll catch everybody next time. Thank you.